In June, Manhattan's average rents hit a record high, over $5,000 a month. Applying the 40 times rent rule for July prices, the median one-bedroom apartment in New York City requires a $150,000 salary. Why are rents so high? What are the drivers of rental demand today? What role do rent regulations play? And does Mayor Eric Adams' housing plan do anything to tackle today's rental woes? In this week's special episode of 10 Blocks, Eric Kober and Michael Hendricks of the Manhattan Institute are joined by David Schleicher of Yale Law School and Rebecca Baird-Remba of Commercial Observer to discuss the drivers of surging rent prices in New York City. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Manhattan Institute's event on rent. I'm Michael Hendricks. I'm a senior fellow and director of state and local policy here at MI. It's good to be with you. Um, by rents, of course, I'm referring to what you pay to put a roof over your head. Now, New York's been a pricey place to live. We all know that. Um, but after a pandemic era reprieve, rents, by all accounts, are soaring once more throughout the Big Apple. Uh, the median rent on newly leased Manhattan apartments reached $1,000 a month in June, according to one report. And the number of homes renting for less than $1,500 a month is rapidly shrinking. So why is this? And why are rents so high? And for whom? What can we do about it? To give us a complete picture of all of this, of New York City's rental market today, of these important questions, as part of our Klinsky series here in New York, um, we're going to be asking a terrific panel of experts to fill us into the details and what all this has to do with the economy and law and politics. There's so much to get into. Uh, first up, Rebecca Baird-Remba, reporter for the Commercial Observer. Rebecca's lived in New York City since moving for college. Uh, she started, she got her start covering real estate for Brownstoner and worked at NY Yimby before heading to the Commercial Observer. Next up, Eric Kober, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He retired in 2017 as director of housing, economic and infrastructure planning at the New York City Department of City Planning. Uh, Eric's also, I might add, uh, co-teaching the storied Introduction to Planning and Development class at the Yale School of Architecture this fall. And speaking of Yale, last but not least, we have David Schleicher, professor of law at Yale Law School and an expert on land use, local government law, federalism, urban development, and much, much more. Also, street grids. Definitely, if you run into him, talk to him about street grids. You should have a t-shirt saying that. Thank. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Really excited to dig in here. Rebecca, let's start with you. Give us a sense of how uh, New York City's rental market is looking today. You wrote uh, last month that while Manhattan rents are up, so too are rents even in the once affordable parts of Brooklyn and Queens. What are you seeing? Uh, yeah, so it's it's just an extremely tight rental market um, and it's tighter than it was before the pandemic because you have all this pent up demand of people who, you know, are moving to the city for the first time, who maybe put it off during the height of the pandemic. And then you have all of these high income people who left, you know, maybe they went to the Hamptons, maybe they, you know, moved someplace else in the country, maybe they moved to Connecticut, whatever, they're coming back. And so you have this huge crunch, you know, in housing um, that's driving up rents to these really unprecedented levels all over the city, um, even in, you know, uh, even in places like uh, Bushwick or more affordable 
parts of other parts of Brooklyn and Queens and upper Manhattan. And um, so it's hard to, there's just this level of anxiety layered over apartment hunting for everyone, um, particularly like middle income people, but even, even people, higher income people are sort of freaking out about finding any kind of apartment um, for a normal price in New York City, for sure. We'll, we'll get back to that sense of, uh, of freak out um, and what different, different people at different levels of income are seeing. Uh, Eric, I want to get to you to give us the big picture. There was a headline in the New York Times, I think it was this weekend, explaining, quote, why the rent is so high. Uh, but when we talk about rents, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have to be clear about what portion of the market we're speaking of, where the data is coming from, and so on. Uh, what are you seeing across the market, whether from new units, newly listed units, rent regulated rent regulated units, the black market, or or elsewhere? Well, the uh, the fundamental issue in New York City is that uh, it's a city where uh, you know employment is is increasing uh, over over time. More people are coming to the city for jobs. Uh, the population is increasing and. Uh, the housing stock is not increasing fast enough uh, to keep up with the additional demand uh, created by a growing population and employment gains. And uh, the, the city and the state have really exacerbated that problem by making uh, uh, ill-considered uh, policy choices. I mean, for example, the, the state legislature uh, passed very strict rent controls uh, in 2019. Uh, the objective of those rent controls is to, to enable people to stay in their apartments. And they do a very good job of that. Uh, what they didn't think about in the legislature in 2019 was, well, what are we going to do about people who are forming a household in New York City, uh, leaving their parents' home and need a place to live, uh, perhaps partnering with somebody, what are we going to do about people who are coming to the city to take a job? And and uh, and there the city has really failed. The city controls its zoning resolution. And uh, uh, during uh, the Bloomberg administration, I was an official at the Department of City Planning during the Bloomberg administration, uh, uh, they did really two things. They did some very ambitious zoning changes in places like Hudson Yards and West Chelsea and Manhattan, Greenpoint, Williamsburg and Brooklyn uh, and downtown Brooklyn. Uh, and they built on zoning changes that had passed in the previous administration, particularly in Long Island City. And so there were a few areas of the city that were zoned for tremendous growth and that grew tremendously uh, uh, in the last decade. And then uh, the other thing the Bloomberg administration did, and it was really a political trade, and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, is that it, it made the zoning more restrictive in a large swath surrounding uh, the areas where uh, 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 rezonings had occurred that, that resulted in a great amount of development. Uh, but the situation that the city faces in, in the 20s uh, the 2020s is that uh, it has gotten most of the, the gain from the rezonings that took place uh, during uh, the Bloomberg administration. Uh, the de Blasio administration did not 
uh, follow through with a further program of ambitious rezonings. Uh, most of the rezonings that it did were in low-income neighborhoods and were very dependent on public subsidy. Uh, therefore, the amount of housing that could be constructed is capped by the amount of public subsidy that's available. Uh, late in the de Blasio administration, uh, they rezoned two areas that were higher income, Soho, Noho, and Kiwanis, but we've not seen a big payoff yet uh, from those areas. And the city goes into the 2020s with a, uh, sort of pumped up demand because of rent regulation, not enough supply because of restrictive zoning. That's a great distillation. And I'm sure others are going to have some other follow-up and feedback on it. But real quick, David, to you, um, kind of piggybacking off of Eric, uh, I really want to hone in a little bit more on why, the, the why question. So, so why are we seeing the rental market we have today in New York City? Um, is it possible to give us kind of your snapshot of the varying causes? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. And uh, this is great. Um, I think you can... As with any market, think about uh, demand side factors and supply side factors. Um, and Eric started us on the supply side factors, but I think it's useful to start off with the what's the short run things are almost all driven by changes in demand. The long run factors are almost all the most important thing will be supply. The um, in the short run. Um, New Yorkers frequently have the uh, pretty myopic attitude towards what's happening elsewhere in the world and not thinking too much about what happens away from our, uh, off our island down outside of our city. Um, but um, you saw a huge increase in housing prices all across the country. Um, in fact, a much larger increase in housing prices outside of um, uh, uh, the downtown cores of, the, of metro areas. Um, and the basic story is that you saw big increases in housing demand um, partially from work, people wanting more space from work from home, and large increases in household formation, people leaving their parents' house or breaking up roommates or whatever. Um, and this effect was muted in New York City, in part because there was some out-migration due to the same forces, uh, people wanting yards or whatever. Um, and partially due to declining immigration, which has two effects. One is there's just fewer people seeking apartments, but also um, uh, migrant immigrants use housing more intensively. Than, uh, than non-immigrants. Um, and so you have fewer people per unit. Um, um, uh, and what we've seen in the last recent period, as Rebecca noted, is New York kind of catching up uh, somewhat to national trends. It was going at a faster rate because it didn't see the increase before, um, but that you're seeing the kind of increases in household formation um, that are driving demand in the New York market the way that you see them driving demand elsewhere, that people are breaking up groups of roommates. If you need to Zoom occasionally, it, having seven roommates in a ratty flat iron apartment um, is not uh, um, uh, is not uh, not advisable. Um, uh, and it, so that's the like trends, but the bigger story is that even though New York City has seen huge fast increases in rent and the market seems completely bonkers, um, over the last three years, there's been faster increases in Boise and faster increases in Westport than there overall than there have been in so two different types of places than there have been in New York City. Now, the rates of change are coming off uh, the prices they were in 2019 and 2020, which were ridiculously high to start off with. Um, and the driving forces there, as Eric noted, were, um, um, were, uh, were things about the restrictions we put on uh, building housing. Um, 
uh, housing and growth in New York City has been um, per capita extraordinarily slow um, for 30 years, um, um, uh, or even more than that, perhaps. Um, uh, uh, we think of San Francisco as a slow growth place, but New York City per capita builds much less housing. Uh, than San Francisco does. And New York City's metropolitan area is even worse. I mean, that probably the two biggest uh, limiters of growth in terms of where there's a lot of demand, but lots of spots in the whole country are, are, are Westchester and particularly Nassau counties. New Jersey is obviously much better. I mean, Connecticut, the less said about it, the better on this front, or Southern Connecticut, the less said about it, the better on the front. And so, and there are a lot of policy reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, or policy decisions that Eric kind of got us started talking about. But the broad picture of the not like what's happening with changes in demand that are kind of happening quickly, but in the broader um, market are driven by that kind of long run limitation on housing growth. Uh, rent regulations are a part, but you know, a large part is just like. The, the huge number of limits on building. Uh, Rebecca, any thoughts of what uh, Eric or David shared? Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it was uh, pretty on point. Um, it's always interesting, um, you know, to hear from people like Eric who oversaw these huge um, zoning initiatives, uh, especially under, you know, Bloomberg, um, who had a very complicated rezoning legacy that we're still grappling with today, that, you know, we have these, you know, we have this huge mess of luxury development in North Brooklyn that has no affordable housing, and that's a Bloomberg legacy. And, you know, you sort of have the same thing happening in Hudson Yards, and you sort of have to look back and think about, like, maybe these rezonings were good, but, like, these were sort of like lost opportunities and now we have this huge level of vacancy and so sort of highest income, um, the highest income levels of housing. And, you know, that was sort of borne out in the housing vacancy survey that, that came out pretty recently um, and was true for a lot of the pandemic. So this question is like, you know, do we need like $7,000 to bedrooms in Greenpoint? I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and that's sort of an issue that the Adams administration is still grappling with today. Um, you know. Yeah, and and I think we'll we'll get back to to right, uh, what been, types yeah. of units are coming on the market and for whom and how and especially the kind of market oriented product versus the um, capital A affordable housing product. There's a lot to get into there. Um, but by the way, for all those who are watching now, please send in your questions, whatever platform you watch is watching us on, um, shoot us a question and I'll just incorporate them as we go in the discussion. Um, Rebecca, just sticking with you for a moment, one, one kind of question that I had is, you know, I've seen folks um, wondering uh, online, why is it that you can have one set of headlines over the past couple of years, warning of crazy out migration from New York during the pandemic, you sort of had that over here. And then another sort of uh, set of headlines over here, warning of crazy demand, sometimes for even pricey units. How, how do you, in, in writing about this very complicated market, square that circle? Um, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately, I think it, it has just, it's just simple, you know, uh, simple demand uh, fluctuations with lots of people 
especially higher income people leaving uh, at the height of the pandemic. Also, I mean, you know, we also had a lot of lower income people who were either priced out or died, um, you know, especially in 2020 and the early part of 2021. And so you had these two groups exiting the housing market um, at the height of the pandemic. And once higher income people started to come back and, you know, New York City's job market started to rebound, you had both uh, rich people returning from their country houses, their summer homes, whatever. And then you also had, you know, younger people who were deciding to move to the city for the first time, um, who've been putting it off or, you know, college students, that kind of thing, people getting their first job. Um, so you sort of see this quick snapback in the rental market that happened over the course of like a year and a half or a year. Um, mm. And, you know, and it sort of just had to do with the amount of uh, inventory on the market um, in, you know, early to mid 2021 versus early 2022. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. 100% drop. So, I, I, a, a, Eric, it, this kind of reminds, oh, yeah, David, go ahead. I also think that there's been a composition change to some extent. One is declining immigration. Immigrants are use housing more intensively. They have larger household sizes on average than non-immigrants. And so the decline, immigration decline you saw in uh, during the pandemic uh, uh, resulted in housing being used less intensively, which me can result in uh, kind of a replacement by uh, uh, you know somewhat richer uh, populations using housing less intensively, which you can see a population decline, but no no fluctuating housing in overall housing demand. It's just like replacing um, you know, families of six with families of two, that type of thing. And the second thing is that you have seen global, nationally, an increase in housing formation, people demanding more space, um, which can be, can reflect itself in increasing demand for apartments overall, um, uh, but decreasing, um, decreasing population or not increasing population. And this is something that's been, New York City's been seeing for a long time. So like the population of the Upper East and Upper West Side have been falling or stagnant for a long time. And, a, and one factor that's driven that has been house apartment combinations. So if you go in, in the apartment building I live in in New York, like a lot of the apartments are combined two and three apartments. Um, and that is uh, richer people uh, demanding more space um, but leads to declining population. And as you see increasing in, in, with income inequality, which not isn't increasing right now, but it what was increasing for, for a while, you see uh, you see things of that sort. Well, and, and, and Eric, I feel like this is, people oh yeah, are, go ahead, Rebecca. Sorry, <laughs> I was just, I apologize. I was just gonna say, and I mean, I like, I, you know, have found this among a lot of like, sort of like 60 something, 70 something retired New Yorkers, I know like, like from like my cycling club, for example, like these people who live in like Stuyvesant town, they live on the Upper West. They're like empty nesters who live in these like may probably rent stabilized apartments, a lot of them, and but they're like large, <laughs> right? So it's like, they're not giving up that housing. So, you know, we're not seeing the kind of uh, turnover in those more expensive markets that you would have been seeing maybe 30 years ago when those first people were first moving in. Mm. And, and I was just going to add, Eric, I feel like this is a vindication of something that you were saying back a couple of years ago um, when there was this uh, battle of like a, a comedy club owner writing on LinkedIn about an obituary for New York City during the height of the pandemic. And then the 
comedian Jerry Seinfeld writing a response. He's a comic club owner, a comedian. We're fighting on whether New York City is going to die. And I remember you saying like, well, okay, if rents are going down, maybe this is an opportunity for kind of a new generation to come in, capture opportunity, get their chance to live in Greenwich Village or some kind of whatever their cool agent experience was. And uh, I think you recall very recently, there was a survey of like, who's coming, who of young graduates of where they would want to move. And right at the top of the list was New York City. They wanted to be in New York City. And uh, like, does that seem like a vindication that maybe young people were taking advantage of that kind of momentary pandemic driven decline in, in rents to say, you know what, I'm gonna live the New York City dream. Or should we kind of still be worried? Because I'm also seeing evidence of older millennials in this kind of era of peak household formation saying, uh, maybe interested in kids or have kids, maybe it's time to eye the exits now. Was it a moment of vindication or, or, or something different? Well, it's, it's a moment in which New York is doing sort of what it does or what it has done. Um, there was a period of time in which uh, the in-migrants to New York City, people who were mo moving to New York City were dominated by immigrants uh, and young uh, college educated adults uh, became the largest group uh, over time. And as, as immigration declined and it began declining uh, uh, prior to the pandemic, um, and so, uh, you know, there, there is, you know, obviously an attraction for young college educated adults who, who, uh, find New York an exciting place to live. They find it a place to meet their mate. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, that has, has increasingly been the case, uh, certainly, uh, the case in the, in the, uh, decade before the pandemic. And, and so, uh, but those people, when they have children, as many of them do, uh, often decide to move to some place where a house with a yard is more readily available and, and less expensive. And so we have this continual churning of the population. What I think happened in 2020 is that the class of 2020, the people who graduated from college, didn't really arrive because businesses weren't hiring. And uh, uh, so they took refuge for a while, you know, perhaps in their parents' homes. And, but they came eventually in 2021 and they, the class of 2021 came as well. And the class of 22 now has come. And so the, 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 uh, the migration of young college educated adults back to the city has, has resumed that em employers are hiring and perhaps people, uh, uh, who can work from home all the time, uh, you know, if they're young college educated adults, they like the idea of working from home from New York City because they, they view it as a great place to live. And so all of this is pumping up the housing demand at a time in which the supply is simply not increasing at a rate commensurate with, with demand. And so we see these, these battles over the few apartments, the few market rate apartments you know, that are available where people end up paying more than the asking rent. And we see these under the table payments for rent stabilized apartments when they go on, when they, they, they become available. Uh, and so uh, the only, you know, way we're, we're gonna get out of this is to greatly increase the number of apartments that are available for people to rent. And, uh, uh, 
you know, the, the city council in the, in the last budget cycle had a, a, a big discussion about whether we should double the, the amount of city aid to, to build uh, publicly subsidized housing. And uh, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, the city is really constrained in terms of the amount of money that it put into its capital budget. And so we're left with the, really the one and only way that this is going to happen, which is to allow private investment in housing on a large scale. And that is something that at this point, neither the, the uh, city council or uh, the state legislature is prepared to countenance. And it, it's a very, very distressing situation in which uh, there's really only one way out and we're not taking it. So, Eric, I want to do a deeper dive, kind of shift to kind of part two of the conversation, a deeper dive into the causes here. So just to stay with you for a moment, um, you said uh, as part of your response that we need more housing and um, that that kind of implies we just need housing of all types. But as you also noted um, toward the end, that this often does point to a conversation on what type of housing are we talking about that's being approved? Um, is it, is it uh, whatever you want to call it, luxury housing? Is it uh, subsidized housing? How is it being subsidized? Is this middle income subsidized housing? And just on and on and on. Are you of the mind that we just need uh, all housing of all types and just let her rip? Do you think that there's some kind of like nuanced middle that you take? Uh, or do you really believe that, I'm going to put words in your mouth that you can push back on, but or do you, or do you, do you agree with those who would say, um, really, we cannot make it, we cannot uh, fight our way out of this without uh, subsidy being the kind of main tool to fight for affordability? Well, um, I, I do believe, first of all, we need geographically dispersed housing. Uh, you know, one of the, the sort of markers of the last decade was that house, housing construction was not ge geographically dispersed. A, a handful of neighborhoods uh, got a lot of new housing, uh, under, mostly under rezonings that were passed during the Bloomberg administration and the Giuliani administration in the case of Long Island City. And uh, uh, many, many community districts in the city got very little housing, including community districts that are relatively affluent and where the level of rents and, and uh, uh, condominium sale prices would support the construction of new housing. So we need geographically dispersed housing uh, you know, in order to do that, we need to have a way to produce non-luxury housing. Uh, you know, clearly, you know, Rebecca talked about uh, uh, two-bedroom apartments renting for $7,000 a month. I mean, clearly, uh, uh, we could uh, uh, do rezonings in the most affluent parts of the city. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we could even cross-subsidize lower rent units with the rents as high as $7,000 a month. And that is essentially the policy that uh, was adopted during uh, the de Blasio administration, which was called mandatory inclusionary housing, which required that every new building uh, cross-subsidize uh, affordable housing. Uh, the problem with that is twofold. First of all, it only works with another program, the tax exemption program called Section 420A, which expired in June of this year. So right now there is no tax exemption program and without that tax exemption program, the economics just don't work anywhere. Uh, the second problem is that even with the tax exemption program, the economics only worked 
in the most affluent parts of, of the city. And, uh, you know, we've seen uh, a handful of these buildings constructed with only tax abatements, uh, uh, both in Manhattan and in, you know, the higher end parts of Brooklyn. But in the broad swath of middle-income neighborhoods around the city, we've not seen any units constructed without public subsidy, uh, even where uh, uh, places that had uh, permissive zoning prior to uh, uh, the inauguration of the de Blasio administration are getting new housing. Places you know that I've written about, like Forest Hills in Queens, where a special zoning district was uh, uh, enacted in 2009 and has produced uh, uh, perhaps a half dozen new apartment buildings at this point and could produce more over time. So, but it doesn't have these cross subsidy requirements. So uh, the city needs to reconcile itself to building housing in middle income neighborhoods and not imposing such strict affordability requirements on them that nothing gets built at all. So that, that is, is something that's very important. Another thing that's very important is to look at housing types. Uh, one of the consequences of the widespread downzoning that took place during uh, the Bloomberg administration is that uh, a housing type that was very common prior, you know, prior to these downzonings has become very uncommon. It's, it's you know, what's sometimes called by, by national commentators, uh, uh, Missing middle housing. Uh, it is uh, a walk-up building stacked uh, three apartments, stacked one on top of the of the other. Uh, it's a relatively low-cost prototype to build, uh, and it's very difficult to find a place, you know, in the uh, sort of broad swaths of of uh, the boroughs outside of Manhattan where you can do it legally at this point. And uh, you know that's. Uh, kind of housing that was built by uh, uh, smaller uh, developers, by immigrants, uh, by minorities. And, uh, and we miss that housing type uh, because we, we've really zoned to prohibit it. Uh, so there, there are many things that the city needs to do to, uh, to permit a uh, sort of geographically broad uh, increase in the amount of housing being constructed. David, I wonder if you have thoughts on this, and, and specifically on the geographical breadth point that uh, that Eric made. Should, for instance, uh, northern New Jersey be a key part of uh, New York City's housing strategy, along with uh, Connecticut? It is terrific that northern New Jersey is building a lot of housing. I think that I generally have that housing people, especially housing experts, uh, uh, make the issues much more complicated than they actually are, which is that, that for, for any given amount of housing that's built, people will adapt it to their uses. And so we sometimes limit, for instance, we limit the number of dwelling units per building, but then we see illegal conversions into multiple apartments inside those apartments. Um, or, or alternately, where we have lots of apartments and people demand bigger places, people will buy two apartments and combine them. Um, the central question for housing markets is just how much there is in terms of number of in terms of number of amount of housing that gets built, um, and in terms of geographically spreading it, there are political reasons why we'd want to do that, and there are infrastructural reasons to balance subway lines and this kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, but the broader question is just the amount that gets built overall, um, uh, and uh, that is the driving force on prices. Now, um, in terms of 
the geographic spread, a lot of the issue is not just in New York City, as you noted, but in New York City suburbs, which are the slowest growing, most nimbyish uh, places in uh, Christendom. Um, it's not fair. There are some places in, in London that are and and uh, that are that are as bad. But you know that we're really not. There's not much in the in in the world. Um, uh, you know, yeah, shout out to the people in Marin County, I guess. Um, but it is a um, it is a uh, uh, the broader the the broad. So I'll step back a little bit and approach some historical perspective. Um, up until the roughly the 1980s, there were no housing markets possible exception of that one's in California, where the regional cost of housing was higher than the cost of average cost of housing was, cost, was more expensive than the cost of building housing. Um, and this is because there's always some place to build. And the two places to build were largely in the exurbs and in the big city. Um, starting roughly in the 1980s, this ceased to be the case. Um, and this is because you saw across lots and lots of jurisdictions enough restrictions go in such that building, housing wasn't being built in the broader region. One part of that story was kind of the ending of the exurban fringe. And one thing we may see now, by the way, is the exurban fringe gets further and further away in a work from home world um, uh, than it did before. And so we may, you know, people only commute one time a week or something, or once a couple times a month, that the, the, the relative market may get bigger in that respect. And that may be a limiting factor on housing prices. The other thing is the big city, which uh, in traditional models was run by growth machines. But in uh, most big cities around the country, that has ceased to be the case, at least most coastal big cities, and this ceased to be the case. In New York, it stopped earlier. We were ahead of the curve. Uh, we, we, killed, we killed that golden goose in the 1960s. Um, uh, but the broader story here is uh, is that uh, we've seen restrictions across lots of jurisdictions. And you see a few pro-growth jurisdictions in northern Jersey, but it is it is um, it is it is a uh, you know a very small factor in a very large housing market. So the real question is just the amount of housing gets built. Broadly speaking, there are political reasons why you want to spread it. There are uh, like so like. It, but if we could build very very extremely tall towers, and New York City got rid of it, New York State got rid of its its twelve FAR cap on residential, um, that could also limit housing prices. And we were, you know could build you could build lots of towers in Manhattan. And theoretically, could have that effect also. David, real, real quick, do you agree with the sentiment that um, today's luxury housing might be tomorrow's affordable housing in an, a world of housing abundance? Of course, every, people, anyone who's lived in New York has lived through this. So I will give a, a, a I don't generally like personal level anecdotes, but this so if uh, I grew up briefly, part of the it was a, a brownstone in Park Slope. It was built as a mansion, was converted into apartments, which is when uh, my uh, lived there briefly, um, and then was reconverted back into a mansion. And that is the story of the broad housing supply having an effect on one individual unit, right? So we can convert units from being luxury to being non-luxury. It was non-luxury in the brief period when I lived there, um, possibly because it was I was a disamenity or something. Um, but it was um, uh, personal disamenity. But it was a um, a uh, and we see that across all types of housing markets. Um, and you see in places like Houston, which are these very fluid housing markets, that things that are built as luxury apartments come within actually a relative. I mean. What's called filtering usually takes twenty or thirty or more plus years, but but relatively quickly um, become middle class housing, become non you know houses get divided up into apartments, they get broke, put back together, and this the the question is mostly just like built space um, devoted to housing, um, 
we can talk about conversions and stuff later if you want to. But yes, yep. so yeah, I do believe luxury housing can become non-luxury housing. And also building luxury housing draws demand away from uh, other housing. Uh, Evan Mass did this great study of New York, um, but it's done, been replicated in other places as well, that like building a new luxury unit means that people who would have otherwise, you know, bought a less luxury unit and put in wherever that font is, you know, and the font people put on the other brownstones when they become Zipified, the Nutra font, um, that we would, that we would, that so like the apart, those fancy apartments in Greenpoint are drawing demand away from other places. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Rebecca, I have, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, one from the audience, but but first, uh, David and Eric a little bit talked about the cost of construction. You recently wrote a piece on the rising cost of construction. So there's kind of broad supply demand questions, but also just building kind of any type of housing now, including capital affordable housing. It seems like it's also becoming more expensive nationwide, but also in New York. What did, what did you find in researching your latest piece? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, the cost of construction has been going up in New York City forever. I don't know, but it's uh, it's sort of accelerated in this fairly dramatic way during the pandemic for, you know, very concrete supply chain and labor shortage reasons. Um, you know, we don't have enough people to fill certain kinds of um construction and skilled trade jobs. Um, and we have very long waits for certain kinds of specialized equipment, um, like kitchen equipment, uh, HVAC equipment, things that are made with, you know, special chips in Asia. Um, and, you know, this stuff is, is, is the, it's the air conditioning in your apartment and it's the, it's your fridge or your, um, or your stove, you know, that's, you know, people are like, I can't get this across the Canadian border. I can't get this from Germany. I can't get this from Japan or Italy. And that's what's a lot of what's slowing down a lot of these projects. Um, and, you know, also just more, uh, just general material costs, um, timber, steel, um, we get a lot of steel from China. Um, so we, the fact that we, import so much of our construction material and you know we are sort of so impacted by the um rising cost of not just the commodities themselves but the cost of transport um so you know the our massive oil shortage the you know all the all the ukraine war stuff um so yeah it's uh there's it's just sort of been this perfect storm of all of these things happening um that have sort of created this really big uh, crunch in terms of how expensive it is and how just sort of like time consuming it is to build stuff on top of like just our very sort of slow like rezoning process and you know department of buildings permitting process and you know all the other like the alphabet soup of of things you jump hoops you have to jump through just to do sort of any development in New York City, um, and not to mention, you know, the cost of land. And right. And, and I remember reading somewhere the Department of Buildings has one of the biggest today, one of the biggest um, staffing shortages across yep. all of the departments in New York City. It absolutely uh, and then it's hurting uh, uh, inspections. But also, I, I mean, I can imagine a chorus of people watching this um, from sort of housing and building Twitter saying, yes, yes, yes. But there's also kind of ongoing um, building codes issues, stairwell requirements, and and elevators, and and right. 
and Steven, crane or no Steven crane. Smith loves the, he loves talking about the, the stairwells. Yeah, that's one of his things. He, I mean, he's, I know, I'm like, yeah, I, I, know, love about, I know about all of his things. Yeah. <laughs> but all like I said, just, just, I guess, acknowledge that all that kind of discourse exists out there. These kind of like big picture questions that apply to New York, but also many other places that how we build and the requirements of how we build um, also kind of just raises the cost of construction as well. Um, real, oh, yeah. real, real, real quick, the people are demanding this. Uh, the uh, our, our viewers are asking about rent regulation, rent stabilization, rent control, just the whole universe of rules around rent. Um, I know it's been mentioned before a little bit early in the conversation. Rebecca, I just want to get your take first. When you hear folks uh, asking this question or you yourself are wondering about this question, how do you approach how rent regulations uh, do or do not play a role in the broader marketplace, uh, broader rental marketplace. Sure. Yeah, Eric um, Eric made a good point about this. I think I mentioned it briefly, but uh, yeah, I'll expand a little bit on it. Just the fact that, you know, the 2019 rent laws, um, because they dramatically capped the amount of monetary improvements on a percentage basis that landlords can collect uh, from apartment and building renovations in the form of increased rents um, that made that sort of changed the financial incentives for landlords to improve rent stabilized units. So units that became vacant after the 2019 law passed, um, a lot of landlords sort of looked at them and said, this the rent on this unit is very low and the financial incentives don't work for me to, you know, put whatever it is, $50,000, $100,000 worth of renovation into it. Um, and because I won't be able to collect that in the higher rent. And so you have this sort of shadow economy of units that, you know, kind of aren't in good shape because people vacated them after a long time, particularly during the pandemic. And there's sort of, it's kind of unclear how many there are um, you know, when I talk to like, you know, Andrew Baracus at MS, he'll say, you know, I think it's definitely there's several thousand of these rent stabilized and rent controlled units that, you know, landlords don't want to fix up um, because it's it's the rent is so low and there's no way for them to recoup the cost of, of essentially a full gut on full gut renovation on this apartment. Um, and so it's 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 really tough. It's a really tough situation. Um, and, you know, when you talk to the landlord groups, like I talked to G. Martin and Chip, and he'll say, you know, we need some kind of, uh, you know, subsidy or something. There needs to be some kind of financial help for unstabilized landlords that can't afford to renovate these units um, because it just doesn't, it doesn't work for them. They can't, they don't have the capital to do it. Um, I mean, especially in these sort of, like middle income to lower income parts of New York City, um, the Bronx, Queens, Southern Eastern Brooklyn, um, where you David, I know you've been following this too, so you smile. Fifteen hundred dollar units that have essentially disappeared from the market. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that you, when you want to think about the effect of rent controls on the broader housing supply. And so the first order thing that kind of normal argument people make about rent control is that it, of rent control anywhere, is that it decreases incentives to build. Um, 
Uh, in New York City, this first of all, because it only applies to old buildings, uh, older buildings, um, absent the newly added things through um, through mandatory inclusionary, and which are kind of a separate set of uh, system of rent stabilization and rent controls. Um, uh, uh, the effect there is, uh, is you wouldn't see it as kind of a first order effect. Um, uh, the question is, will it be reimposed on new buildings? I think is a newly interesting question. Um, it could be. Um, and so maybe that uh, the, but the bigger thing is that we limit supply in so many other ways in New York City that the effect of rent control and supply is like belts and suspenders. Um, that said, rent control has these indirect effects that uh, Rebecca and Eric were talking about, about people taking units off the market um, due to um, uh, it no longer being worth it to make them habitable um, because you can't increase the rents. And secondarily, it causes huge effects in misallocation. So rich, richer people with apartment with with rent stabilized apartments, in addition to transferring wealth from landlords to renters. Um, the one thing I can add to, I mean, Re Rebecca and Eric will have much more to say on the market size effects than I will on this front. Um, the one thing I'll say is that there are, there are some, I think, newly interesting legal questions that have emerged about rent control following the Supreme Court's takings cases in the last year, um, and particularly with respect to one aspect of the rent control regulations, which are the limits on owner reoccupation. So the rules governing owner reoccupation suggest that an owner of a, who, someone who owns a building who wants to move into it themselves can only move into one unit they own and has to convince a judge that uh, it is necessary. I forget the exact, exact term is like necessary, legitimate, necessary, something of, the, of that sort. They, which this was made much stricter in the 2019 regulations that, that were part of the broader package that also limited um, uh, the ability to raise, increase rents for uh, improvements and got rid of vacancy decontrol um, and uh, uh, luxury decontrol. Um, the, this specific limit on the ability of owners to move back into their units is, um, I think, you know, and other, not just me, but other experts think, uh, is uh, potentially legally suspect. It's not really being directly challenged by the litigation being brought by the Rent Stabilization Association. Um, uh, it would have to, you'd have to like fail at this effort. You'd have to find a landlord who tried to move in and was rejected and then have a case that was going to take a little while. Um, but I think that this is pretty vulnerable following the Supreme Court's recent decisions um, and could be uh, cause a big change in New York City rent regulation because it would effectively allow for the condivisation of all rent stabilized apartments in one way or another. And well, so, it, um, so I just, yeah, I mean, maybe it sounds like you're aware of this, but the 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 RSA case is being heard at the same time as a case from a landlord that's that's they're upset about their inability to reoccupy yeah. in Long Island City. And I think when it was heard by, I want to say the Court of Appeals. The judges were like very skeptical because the whole setup was like kind of weak, honestly. So it's like, I don't really like, I don't yeah. know if, is that really going to be the. the, the <laughs> it's a great question. So the, the, in the, under the old rent regulation and the second circuit had a previous opinion that said that like the Supreme Court has said that rent controls are fine and have been fine since the 1920s. Um, and the second circuit has pretty close precedent on it. If it's going to be reversed, it's going to be reversed by the Supreme Court itself. And not by any other institution, um, and not and a lower court would never do this. Um, the um, now, is it sure to win? No, but it's it is a it is it is it's somewhat possible. Um, I'd say um, it would the whether the Supreme Court takes this case up, another case up, a case from somewhere else up. You never know. Uh, but I, again, I think that the the universe of things the Supreme Court may do um, uh, uh, 
people's minds have opened to the possibility of, of greater change coming from the Supreme Court than they might have thought previously. Um, across right. the and so yes, I think that I think that the the like the Second Circuit was yes, it was extraordinarily skeptical, and that is and the and the RSA's case is just like rent rent stabilization is a taking, yep. and it's exactly like you know this other Supreme Court case where the the farm workers the what was it oh the union the union organizers shouldn't have been allowed to to go yeah. organize the grape you know the grape farm workers in California, which I was like, come on. <laughs> The thing about that case, is I, I, like, I don't want to derail us too much, is like there is language in that case that they're seizing on. Like they have a very, the RSA's case is like very strangely set up, but they have very talented lawyers bringing the case and they are seizing on things that the Supreme Court said. Um, now, will it be convincing? Does the Supreme Court care what it says? When it may, it's, a, it's a great set of questions that are a little hard to hard to know. Um, but the, the court, they are seizing on language the court used. Um, uh, even though the situations are extremely disanalogous. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is that like the um, the RSA's case is, as you noted, like this like a weird frontal attack. It's like not, doesn't feel strategic, which was a little strange. Um, um, but I think that was largely driven by the fact that people were driven nuts by the 2019 law. Like it made people so crazy and so angry for some good reasons um, that they um, they their litigation ended up being like a little like, I don't know, like, all guns blazing kind of crazy. But all that to say, this is a space that we should be watching and that there will be likely much more to come in the future. And certainly, and I want to turn the conversation to where we go from here at the city and state level. Um, Eric, I, I do want to come back to you. Rebecca, real quickly though, I mean, you're watching all of these kind of reform movements. You're watching what's happening at the city and the state level. Um, what are you hearing from... Uh, Mayor Adams' administration about their kind of housing strategy. They recently issued a plan, right? I mean, what's its status? Where is the administration going? And then I do want to get us back to the state level and what we're seeing in the courts um, and all that coming down the pike. But I really want to come back to New York City real quick. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting. I think Eric touched on this. It's how, you know, the state legislature or this rather the the executive office, you know, Kathy Hochul, she came in and she really, her office issued this list of zoning overrides that they wanted to do. And the state legislature was like, nope. Um, and so, you know, now the state is looking at, you know, creating a supportable housing commission to try and fix some of these big problems that impact what may basically only New York City. So like 421A, um, property tax reform, which like our property tax system in New York City is like super inequitable. Um, so we have a lot of these issues that fundamentally, like the Adams administration, like kind of can fix, but mostly they can only fix by going and lobbying the, the state and making it clear that this is a priority for them to fix. Um, but in terms of Adams's housing plan, I would never claim to speak for the Adams administration, but uh, I can sort of tell you what what other people's uh, takes on it. Um, the reactions have been very mixed. I mean, because he, you know, he had this press conference where he announced it and he said, we want to we want to get more people into housing. And he sort of said, you know, this is about sort of reducing the barriers to leasing these units and accelerating these processes to get people into housing, accelerating the development process. But then he sort of said, well, but I don't have these concrete 
development goals, like in terms of number of units and like the de Blasio administration did, you know, de Blasio came out with this plan where he was like, I'm going to build X hundred thousand units of housing. People are like, okay, but I don't still think it's a little, a little more nebulous. And so people are pretty skeptical, I think at this point about what the administration really wants to do, especially since they're dealing with these really big staff shortages in the agencies, HPD, DOB, um, you know, the department, the DDC, all, all of these agencies that build and review projects, approve their financing, you know, you sort of have to square all of these different things in order to fix our sort of housing problems, right? And it's not clear how the Adams administration is like moving forward with doing that other than like, I don't know, trying to put more homeless people in hotels because he's, you know, getting all this pressure public pressure that people don't like seeing homeless people on the streets, you know, that there's all of this discussion of like, you know, is the Adams administration really going to, you know, deal with the homeless crisis and how are they really going to do that? You know, he says, I'm going to build 15,000 units of supportive housing in the next two years, but like, Where's that going to come from? How are we doing that? Like, <laughs> what sites we're building that on? You know, yeah, Eric, Eric. I mean, you you a lot of thoughts on this too. So so when Adams came out with his plan, you had thoughts. You also had thoughts too when um, uh, Governor Hochul had her housing suggestions. Can, can you give us sort of a rundown of what your reactions were to Adams and and Hochul? Kind of a a, a way to point us toward your kind of preferred outcomes. Well, I, you know, I think that. You know, Adams really faces a perfect storm of everything going wrong at once. And I mean, just to, you know, sort of give you an, an idea of this, you know, we talked about construction labor shortages. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, the inability of the buildings department to, to fill positions. I mean, this is all related to the housing crisis. Um, that, that uh, you know, it's very hard to get someone to move to the New York metropolitan area or to New York City. Uh, you know, for a job that's not a high-paying job, because there there is simply uh, no housing available, and uh, if you have a set of skills that uh, you know you could use at the building department in New York, you could use it in lots of other cities that uh, where housing is much more readily available, and and uh, even if you're paid somewhat less in those cities, uh, because the cost of housing is much lower, you know you're gonna you can end up with a better uh, uh, standard of living. So uh, all of these things are, are related. And, uh, you know, I think the, the criticism that's been directed at Adams is that, uh, you know, the uh, proposals that he's made have just not been up to the sort of massive extent of the crisis. And, uh, 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 you know, I, I think certainly that at, you know, at the staff level, they're aware of that, but it's just difficult. It's difficult for political reasons. Uh, it's difficult for budgetary reasons uh, uh, to uh, to be honest and to really make a statement about uh, what we what we need to do. But you know, I think that uh, 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 you know there are, there are aspects that they're grappling with that you know we've we've only touched upon here. Uh, you know, Adams has has, has lately uh, been uh, talking a lot about uh, uh, border states shipping people, hope, uh, 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 asylum seekers who have been released into the United States being shipped into uh, 
uh, New York City on, on buses and, and uh, uh, you know, ending up in the homeless system in, in New York City and exacerbating uh, the problems that they have. Uh, but of course, the problem that they have is that they, they don't have housing to place. I mean, these are, these are not people who need supportive housing. They're not, uh, you know, they're not a, a, a population with special needs. They just need a place to live, but there's no housing for them to be placed into that's, that's available. And so the, the numbers in terms of uh, homeless that are being housed, the, the census uh, that the city takes every night, it went down for a while during the pandemic because uh, housing was available, that there, there were places where you could place people. Uh, and that of course has become increasingly not the case. So we're heading back toward the levels of sheltered people that we saw at the height of the, the, the Blasio administration, 2018, 2019. So, uh, you know, everything is related to everything else. And housing is, uh, you know, housing has a, a, uh, a lead time that even if you, you thought of ways to, to do it, your approval process is very long. Uh, the building process that is long beyond that so uh, even if you came up with solutions, the crisis would still be about as bad as it is now, or maybe even worse for several years until uh, new housing actually, uh, you know, became available. So, but, 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 but nevertheless, in the world of this conversation that we have, David Schleicher has now been appointed housing czar, and he will put forward at the, at the local and the state level a series of, of actions that will address what Eric called a crisis. Uh, so, so, so David, if, as housing czar, what, given sweeping powers to address the city's housing market woes for the long term, what do you say, do? The first thing I would do with that position is quit. What an unforgiving, terrible job that would be. It's, a, it's a, just yelled at by members of community boards all over the country, over the city. Yeesh. I mean, here's the thing I'd say is that, I think focusing on like putting a um, the solutions to this are relatively are actually as a policy matter not complicated at all. Like we need to let more people let 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 somewhere let more housing be built, and we probably also need to reform our property tax system into ways that make it look like any other place's property tax system. And those like the policy solutions are not complicated. The politics are remarkably complicated. Um, and I think that I want to like let finish off with a couple of thoughts about this. One is that New York City and New York State are completely outside of where the rest of the debate in the rest of the country is on housing. You see particularly up and down the West Coast, but also in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, all, a broader consent, and certainly among experts, a broad consensus that housing restrictions have become far too strict. Um, and there are a variety of methods to do things and some policy that are more effective and less effective, but the belief that more supply is the solution to housing prices or more allowing more supply is the solution to housing prices is at this point both um, is uh, among Experts, a, a, a relatively universal thing. There's there's some some weird holdouts and dead enders and stuff. Um, but for the most part, it is. Uh, and you see it increasingly true among policymakers. And New York City and New York State are completely outside of that. Um, in which the uh, there are officials who say things of this sort, but for the most part, the there is no the 
the debate does not take the form of we need to build housing, but maybe not here. It just it's a variety of people who say absolutely not in my neighborhood under any circumstances and you know are extremely density 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 skeptical or building skeptical. Um, the second thing I I'll say about this is the Adams administration's plan kind of operates on two levels. Uh, one is kind of quiet citywide changes that they are proposing and that may pass. You saw some of this during the de Blasio administration. Well, there's a lot of discussion about, and we talked briefly about mandatory inclusionary zoning, but probably the most important land use change that happened during the de Blasio administration was zoning for quality and affordability, which is a citywide kind of complex, boring change that actually freed up a decent amount of uh, new uh, housing. And you're seeing the kind of bubbling up of that in the Adams administration. The more high profile stuff is neighborhood specific rezonings. And when de Adams was running, I was somewhat hopeful that someone who had the kind of political machine that he'd built, he'd built around him, um, big union support, but also uh, big employer support, would have the type of political muscle to be able to force things through. And so you saw at the very end of the de Blasio administration, a few neighborhood specific rezonings. Um, as it turned out, the Adams administration has not tried at all to do anything on this front. And we've seen the efforts we've seen. So like in, we just saw something, a big, huge project, uh, not go down, but almost go down in Queens, um, Central Harlem, all of these projects. And the, the, the question that faces the Adams administration is not what to say rhetorically, but do you have the stick to push things through when neighborhood individual council people are uh, being uh, doing what they do and trying to stop new projects? Uh, do you have the political threat and power in order to do this? And the same thing is true, I think, for the Hochul administration um, in Albany, says all the right things on housing, made a set of proposals, and as soon as there was even a slight bit of pushback from a completely no-hope gubernatorial challenger, uh, folded like uh, uh, you know, a house of cards. Um, and so I think the question is, so if I were the housing director, I would try to convince the people who are actually in charge, who are the politicians who lead these things, to actually try um, and uh, to uh, fight on, these, this, on this score. Um, and maybe they'll be successful and maybe they won't. But I think it is important for a New York-centric crowd to remember or notice exactly what a weird outlier New York City and New York State are on this front. Uh, New York State is really the only state that is engaged in absolutely no land use reform of the high demand states in the whole country. I mean, some states have done kind of gestural things like Connecticut, but at least they're doing something. New York State has done nothing. Um, and um, uh, New York City is really an outlier in its rhetorical structure relative to other big cities. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think that there are, I mean, like, you can be hopeful about certain things about what you're seeing among the political beliefs of young people and other sorts. But New York City is really, really weird and really, really, really different from what you're seeing in the politics of other places. And I, you well, know, I, go ahead. Just build on that. You know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, part, you know, one, one aspect of that is are, are the politics of the state legislature and, uh, the city council. And, uh, uh, you know, in other states, you have a reform caucus in the state legislature. Uh, you know, you have uh, people like Scott Weiner in California who have, and, and he's not the only one in the California legislature, people who have 
put together, you know, in the case of California, it's really a, a, a cross-party coalition uh, which has managed to pass constructive legislation uh, to sort of push uh, uh, towards uh, a liberalized land use framework. Uh, you know, there's really none of that going on in the New York State Legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the you know, the, the uh, you know, you, you could say, well, you know, why is that? I mean, you know, it may be, you know, it's a, maybe a function of one party rule, maybe a function of the system in which uh, there's election every two years. So everybody's always running for re-election. Uh, it may be a function of, of the, the just the sheer number of legislators we have uh, in uh, New York state compared to, to other states where the, the legislative bodies are, are, you know, each legislator represents, uh, you know, a larger number of people in New York city. There are more assembly districts than there are council members, and you know there are probably too many council members as well. Uh, but uh, you know we've we've not seen leadership at the state legislature. We've not seen leadership on the city council. Rather, we've seen just a lot of of uh, professed hostility. And uh, you know I think that it, you know the challenges for uh, 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 both uh, the governor and the mayor, who I think sincerely want to move in a pro-housing direction is how you put together a, a majority, uh, you know, in the legislature and on the city council to do things that, that move us forward. And, you know, I think another important point uh, about uh, uh, New York State is that procedurally also it's an outlier. It's not only an outlier in terms of not doing things, uh, California is really the only state that has an, uh, an environmental review process that's comparable, you know, perhaps even worse. I, I was, you know, stunned when Chris Elmendorf wrote an article comparing New York's secret process favorably to California's secret process. Uh, but uh, compared to anybody else, uh, New York State's secret process is just enormously expensive, enormously time-consuming. And one of the best things the state legislature could do is just exempt housing, uh, uh, you know, entirely from this necessity of, of going through environmental review, particularly in cities of more than one million population with a housing emergency. You know, what, you know, we, yes, we can, we can have a traffic impact, but is that worse than what we have now? Uh, you know, so I think that's very important. Uh, you know, we need, obviously some kind of tax reform at the state level also uh, uh, to, to have not have 421A and not have property tax reform at the same time just puts us in a situation where uh, rental housing becomes impossible to, to finance and construct. And, um, you know, we can't really solve our, our housing crisis under those circumstances. So there are many things that have to be done. There's a political coalition that doesn't exist that has to be put together. It has to be put together very quickly. So we've heard the solutions. We've heard the political need uh, and, and the need for learning about comparative case studies, case studies of other jurisdictions that have reformed or are in the process of reforming or at least have the groundwork laid for reform um, for that. Follow Rebecca, follow her, her work here in New York. And uh, Eric, I know you just came out with a piece on six rezoning ideas throughout New York. You've done other work too on the jobs housing mismatch uh, nationwide and in New York. David, yeah, 
everybody, please follow David Schleicher on Twitter, his podcast, his academic work, everything from zoning budgets to consistency requirements in the state zoning enabling acts, you name it. He has great work out there. Um, and thank you for tuning in. Please follow the rest of our work at the Manhattan Institute and, and my colleagues. And please stay tuned for more conversations like this on important and timely topics in New York City and beyond. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.